welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. We are so excited to bring you Duncan Fletcher for this episode of the podcast. He's doing some really cool things in the sports and hockey worlds right now. A little bit of his background, Duncan grew up kind of all over Canada, but got his coaching start in Victoria, B.C. in the BCHL. Uh, He was then hired as an assistant coach at Quinnipiac University uh, a pretty good while ago, but now he is the founder of actually a company called Game Change, and they do some awesome stuff in the athletics world. Uh, Duncan is also a co-founder of the Professional Athlete Transition Institute and a co-founder of the Professional Association of Athlete Development Specialists. So he does a lot of work uh, in you know athlete development, but also uh, his company does a lot of work with the NHLPA in terms of helping people transition outside of hockey once they're done. So a lot of, lot of really cool things that we talk about on this episode. Duncan's also a hockey dad right now, so he's steeped in the youth hockey culture. Before we get to Duncan, Duncan, though, let's get over to the talent of the episode, Jeff Lavecchio. Jeff, what's up? I just crushed a green tea, buddy, and I'm ready to go. Let's do this. Green tea? I feel like that's kind of like not your thing. There's no protein in there. There is no protein in there, but I ate um, before we got on this. And, uh, you know, I actually was thinking about... Noreen and his smoothies. I got to re-listen to what he said he puts in his. I'm going to give his a shot. (laughs) I like it. You know what I just thought of as you were saying that? The shot is, hit me with your best shot. Fire away. Dude, my voice is gone. My voice is gone from yelling and motivating all day, every day. Not (laughs) there. I'm sorry. Bumblebee, bumblebee, bumblebee. Uh, I like it. Well, before we get to some talking stuff, I do want to send a huge congratulations to one of the best people I know, Brent Brecky. Brex, who I actually played for at Cornell. Uh, and then uh, he was the guy that gave me my first shot in coaching uh, as a graduate assistant at Miami. He was an associate head coach there at the time, was, was the guy that asked me to come on staff. Um, but now he's been named the head coach of St. Lawrence. So he's going to do awesome, awesome things with that program. Um, have you met Brex? You probably met him at my wedding, huh? Yeah, I probably danced with his wife at the wedding. <laughs> He was, it's so funny. He was saying, because so for all the listeners, Jeff was the best man at my wedding and in his little toast speech thing, um, he kind of gave it to the Cornell coaches for not recruiting him. And because of that, he said he was going to dance with all their wives, uh, at the wedding. So, and I did, and And did. did. but the best part was Brex comes up to me afterwards and he goes, he doesn't realize that he's actually doing us a favor. That's a good thing. Now I don't have to get on the dance floor. (laughs) So he's like, uh, it was pretty funny. uh, that's perspective right there. That's perspective. There he just flipped around. Nice job. His wife was dancing with a super hot, very great dancer on the dance floor. And instead of getting upset, he just looked at it from a different angle. Good job, Brex. Congrats. Yeah, uh, super, super good dancing. Also shirtless and sweating profusely. Um, oh, guy, amazing golf ball whacker guy. Give um, off those phones, baby. <laughs> 
But uh, super pumped for Brex. It's funny. Like, I wrote a blog about it. Um, so if you haven't read it, you can go to the website. But um, he's, like, just an unreal guy. Unreal coach. Just so selfless. He's a guy he actually – Every Christmas day at home, he took time out of his day to make sure he called every single player on the team just to wish him Merry Christmas. Um, and, uh, yeah, like even as a freshman at Cornell, we, I remember sitting around and being like, there's no way that he's going to be our coach here for four years. He's going to get a head coaching job somewhere. And talk about perspective. He didn't get his job until 15 years later. 15 wow. years later. And he interviewed for a few things and stuff like that, but um, I can't imagine a guy with that kind of coaching ability. It took him that long to become a head coach. So um, he certainly paid his dues. He's won championships pretty much everywhere he's ever been. His first year at Clarkson this year, they won an ECAC championship, um, one at Miami, one at Cornell. Um, he was the captain actually at Western Michigan, um, where you went to school. So um, awesome guy, super, super pumped for him. Brex is a Bronco? Brex is a Bronco. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure I knew that, but just had that information shoved out from other information. But um, yeah, that's really cool. Wow, super exciting. Nothing better than seeing a guy grind his ASS off for that long and then be rewarded. Very cool. Congratulations. Yeah, and he was such like the ultimate leader. So Brooksy, who you played for at Western Michigan, and who I played for. Um, when I was playing pro and he's now an assistant coach at Michigan tech, he was telling me a story about, and we talk about this too on the podcast. Like there's different ways of people holding each other accountable, right? Like some people, you know, it's putting an arm around, Hey, you need to be better. Some people you take them out to lunch. Some people like are comfortable with getting in somebody's face. So Brex was the kind of guy that when he was playing at Western Michigan, he was playing with Brooksy and Brooksy was telling me that if there was anybody that was kind of slacking off or anybody that needed to be put into their place, Brex was a defenseman and every Every drill, he made sure that he went against that guy. And Brex is like a tough, hard-nosed kind of player, I guess. And so, like, he, he, he would, like, cut people in line to make sure that he was going against that person who needed to be sent a message to and then just, like, totally played him hard and was like, hey, this is how we do things. Eat it. I love that, man. I love that. And that, that reminded me. I totally forgot about this. <clears throat> but when I was playing at Western – so after my sophomore year, I could have left and signed and I decided to stay, stay one more year. And we had a D man there named Chris Frank, who I'm sure you remember, oh, you know, watching. He was yeah. a tank. He was, his nickname was Frank the tank after his very first preseason game against the CIS team. Cause he was <laughs> murdering people. And if you want to see one of the biggest hits in hockey history, look up Chris Frank on YouTube and his hit on uh, my buddy, Travis Turnbull's teammate. I think it was on Danny Fardig, maybe guy is knocked out mid-air while he's falling down broken ribs punctured lung like oh, wow. frank i mean frankie was 220 61 220 and fast as hell like it was crazy but back to my story like you talking about brex doing that so going into our junior year chris frank and i um we said to each other before the year like look you know our goal is to both play pro hockey like this whole season let's go each against each other every drill so that whole year, like we tried to always one-on-ones, two-on-ones, three-on-twos, we would always manipulate the lines so that we would go against each other because we both loved battling and we knew it would make us better. So for the kids out there listening, like don't be afraid to make it harder on yourself in practice. If you make practices harder than games, games are easier. So like go, don't go against that bender on your team every time you're playing on spring league, playing spring league and you always go to that one bender side or you try and match up against the guys who aren't as good. Like F that noise, challenge yourself, make yourself grow, go against that best defenseman. If you're a defenseman, go against that forward. Who's probably going to dangle you because it might work the first time might work the second time, but you're going to start to learn how to defend him 
and then you'll become a better player from it. Well, you can even go further and talk to the adults uh, about this, and that's why it's so stupid to form super teams at these young ages because you're not challenging the kids at all. You know, when they go and they play their games. And so it's funny, like I was on Twitter the other day and somebody I was, I follow was talking about, you know, we won this spring freaking game 15 to two or something like that. And it's like, they're, they're boasting about it on Twitter and it's like squirts or something. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, like you got to take yourself to the vet and be put down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's really cool that you guys did that though. I mean, it made you better, right? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, Frank, I, I never got around him <laughs> a, because I was partly afraid the guy is literally a killer and, uh, you know, like it, it definitely made me better going against a guy who I knew was trying to rip my head off and then I'm trying to rip his head off, you know? So it, it definitely made a, we did, we did get in a tilt one time and I think it was summer going into that year. Actually, we just battled, you know, for many days over and over, probably like linemen do you see in the NFL, you know, battling each other. And then it just, enough hits against each other. And then you're like, all right, let's do this. And we went to shed them. And usually, you know, practice fights, they allow them to happen. But I like to think they didn't want us to fight because we were both better players, but it was actually because they were probably like, Frank is going to kill Vex. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get in there. (laughs) Very, very true. true. He was a big human being, man. Holy, like as wide as he is tall. Buddy, he squatted. So, you know, me as a trainer, I personally don't like back squats. I like doing other things as opposed to that. But one of our tests in college hockey back then was back squats. And you wanted to get max weight for three to five reps. Frankie throws 500. It was either 500 or 550. I can't remember. I feel like it was 550, but we'll say 500 since I'm not sure. I know it was at least five bills. 500 pounds on the bar. So we start squatting and we're thinking it's going to be three to five, which is amazing. He does 15 reps and they're like, all right, you're done. And they stopped him. 500 pounds. Where's he from? Uh, Washington, the state. Oh, wow. Yeah. He played in you to say that. (laughs) Yeah. He played in the BCHL, um, growing up and then came to Western. But I mean, wow. Like, that guy was literally a killer. My God. Like if you want to see a big hit listeners, YouTube, uh, I don't, I don't know what you got to search. Probably like Chris Frank, Western Michigan hit or something like it was on ESPN. It was massive. He's a killer. Yeah. Anyways, nice. tangent, tangent <laughs> over. All right. So let's get to this conversation that we had with Duncan. A uh, lot of really good things. And uh, it's interesting. Some of the stuff that his company's doing that he, has founded right now, the company's called Game Change, and we talked a lot about behavioral analytics. And, you know, everybody, we're in a data age right now, information age, and everybody's trying to quantify everything. And I feel like the game of hockey, from from a hockey standpoint, you know, like, it's been quantified. Analytics is a serious, serious part of the game. And I've always kind of said, at least recently, that the next wave of data that's going to be coming is the study of human beings and how to get the most out of people, how to get the most out of a team. And his company kind of does that with behavioral analytics. So, like, what did you think about him talking about that? And, and where do you see that as a fit in the game today? I mean, I, I so. I'll take it back. I remember when I was on central scouting or whatever in the USHL. And I think it was the Rangers sent me like a, a 250 questionnaire, 250 question questionnaire, like before my draft year. And it was like, 
it was a behavior test obviously. And it was like so many questions and like so monotonous or whatever. And like, I didn't even know how to answer some of them. And like, I was, I had no help. Like I, I just answered them however I thought. And I, th- I I'm, I'm guessing that was the precursor to like what he's doing now. And it just, it sounds like so, Oh, boom, light bulb. This makes sense. If you can learn about your players and how they learn and how they like to be talked to, how they like just everything. The more you can learn about your players as a coach, you're going to be able to coach them better. Like if you're going to be able to know how one player sees the ice, sees the game, his behaviors, his tendencies, his traits, his personality, you're going to be able to probably line him up better with, with line mates that will fuse with his skill set both on and off the ice better because you know more about the inside, not just his hockey brain. Like it's everything. So I think that it makes total sense. Like if you're going to try and make the best team possible, be the best coach, you're going to want all these analytics on each player's, you know, behavior and personality and stuff. I think it's very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that we talked about that was really interesting and, and it's a huge point of, of uh, not, I don't want to say contention, but it's a huge topic that people are talking about right now is the transition out of hockey for specifically NHL and professional players and, and how difficult it can be and how much work um, his company and the NHLPA is, is putting into, um, you know, helping people transition out. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I have my story of kind of how I transitioned out and obviously we weren't NHL players, but I don't think it really matters if you're playing hockey at a professional level and that's who your identity is. It's, it's hard to do anything else. Um, so I wanted to kind of ask you before we get to Duncan, like what, what was your transition like when you stopped playing and, uh, you know, was it tough? Was it easy? What did you learn? All that kind of stuff. I think mine was a little bit different than most guys because of my concussions. You know, I was kind of, I always knew that, well, A, I was always worried like my career could end at any moment. If I got one more bad one, I, I was going to be done. Like I, I, it wouldn't have been healthy for me to keep playing. So I kind of always had that in the back of my mind. Like I could be done at any time <clears throat> for that reason is why I started. One of the reasons I started my off ice training company after like my third or fourth year pro. Um, so I kind of knew what I was going to do after hockey, but it still doesn't prepare you. My, my first year not playing was this past hockey season. And, you know, I had the same routine for 10 years, you know, in the summers, wake up, work out, and then I could do whatever I wanted with the rest of my day. However, I saw fit after a couple of years, I did the company, but, um, during the season, wake up, everything's geared towards being the best hockey player I could possibly be that morning and that day. And by lunchtime I'm done, you know? And so that is not a normal life <laughs> working an hour and a half, two hours, three hours a day. Um, not the biggest thing for me was not having the locker room. I found that I really missed two things the most. One was the being in the locker room with a group of guys who you're battling with day in and day out throughout eight months a year and trying to get better and trying to reach your goals. And two was like, obviously I miss practicing. Obviously I'm, or obviously I miss scoring goals. I miss playing games, obviously, but I really miss that competitive outlet and practice. Like I really, really missed that over the last year. And I won't say that I was like depressed or anything over the last year, but it was definitely hard. Like not, not having that sense of like camaraderie and like going in, going in and beating each other up every day and knowing we were getting better. And then afterwards going to lunch and going to dinners with the guys and having coffees and really getting to know guys. Thankfully for me, I decided to coach 
um, be an assistant coach for a triple A team here in St. Louis, my first year, um, not playing. Cause that kind of gave me that sense. I was still in the locker room. Obviously it was a different dynamic. I'm a coach, they're players, but like I really bonded with the guys and I was really a part of the team and that helped my transition big time. Were there tough days? You know? Yes, obviously. But like that, and obviously having my training company to go right into, were made it a lot easier for me, but I know a lot of guys who struggle pretty hard. Um, you know, we have some mutual friends who I, who we both know that obviously that's what mutual means. Um, they (laughs) do that, that, that struggled, you know, pretty hard finding their identity. They didn't know what to do when they, when their careers ended, whether they ended on their own or, or like they knew they wanted to be done or an injury happened or, or whatever. Um, they kind of weren't ready for that transition. So it was really cool hearing him talk about the actual studies that they're doing, that they're showing that finding interest outside of hockey will actually make you a better hockey player while you're doing it. And then also prepare you for life after hockey, whether you're a junior hockey player, a college hockey player, a professional hockey player, like learning what you like, what you want to do, that's going to make you a better hockey player. And then also allow you to transition much smoother. Yeah, that was interesting, and, and I'll probably leave it to Duncan to talk about it because he's the one that's actually been a part of those studies. But, yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to hear him, you know, talk about the having other interests while you're still playing and how that can help you to become a better player because you don't really think about that, right? You think about, you know, if I want to be a great hockey player, i got to focus on hockey. All my decisions that I make throughout the day has to be in, you know, in the best interest of myself becoming this great player. Um, when it was like, no, actually balance is good. And having other interests is good. And uh, I'll let him talk about it on the podcast. But, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to hear that for sure. Kind of makes me think of how many guys I played with in the American League that were really good at the guitar. Yeah. Uh, like we had Matt Lashoff on the podcast. And for any newer listeners, if you haven't listened to the podcast we did with Matt Lashoff a while back, I thought that was one of the best ones we did. I mean, there was so much information, stories, a lot of fun, uh, really smart guy. But like Matty Lashoff, I mean, he he's a little different because he's a legit recording artist. Um, but he would get out of the rink, go have lunch. I don't know if he's a napper or not taking naps, but then he'd start working on his music and the guy had a phenomenal career. And so many guys I played with in the AHL and and Europe are really good at the guitar. They'll go home and they'll, they'll rip and beat on the guitar for hours. And I just think that that's, you know, kind of like finding an interest, working on it. Obviously not everybody's going to become a professional musician like Lash Off, but just like getting interested in other things, it works your brain in different ways. You're, you're firing different neural pathways and that's going to help you be a better athlete, a better person, more content, just, just not just putting all your eggs in one basket and just focusing solely on hockey, like doing other things. It's going to allow your brain to to relax about hockey and, and, and work itself in different ways. So I, I totally agree. And I, I'm really excited to, to follow Duncan's career because, um, you know, it's something I'm really interested in. If yeah. I was a teacher, if I was a teacher in a school, I would want to have these behavioral analytics on all the kids in the class, because then, you know, you couldn't know how to group them for different projects and you know how one kid learns and what one kid likes. Like, I think this is honestly like next wave for jobs, for hot, for sports, for schools. I think everybody's going to be using stuff like this pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll let, uh, we'll let Duncan get right to it and, and talk about some of the stuff that he does because it is, it's pretty groundbreaking and, uh, really interesting to hear him talk about it. So without further ado, Let's head it on over to Duncan Fletcher. 
We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, Duncan Fletcher. Duncan lives in West Hartford, Connecticut right now. How are you doing today? Doing phenomenal. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. So, Duncan, you've you've got quite the journey in the hockey world, um, and you're doing some pretty awesome things right now. Um, but want to take it way back to start. We like to do that with our guests, get a little bit of a story of kind of how you grew up in the game, how you fell in love with the game. So I know you kind of traveled and, and lived in a bunch of different parts of Canada, but eventually settled south of Vancouver, one of the nicest cities uh, right on the water there in Swanson. So talk to us a little bit about how you grew up and, and uh, how you fell in love with the game. Yeah, I mean, uh, just like you said, kind of grew up all over the country. Uh, found myself, uh, was born in, in Edmonton, got introduced to the game there, where, you know, kind of got kicked out on the uh, the sheet ice in the local neighborhood that's surrounded by the bales of hay. So that's kind of how I got introduced to the game. Uh, started really playing when I uh, moved to Ottawa. So grew up uh, for a chunk in, in Ottawa, played for the Gloucester Rangers, uh, and then ended up uh, moving west. Uh, to to Vancouver with the family and and again sort of kept the hockey going and in terms of where it went with it um, was kind of like I was a big D man couldn't move that well couldn't fight a bit of a speed bag and uh, (laughs) long story short the the game kind of I ended up playing uh, a little bit of junior in Ontario when I went back actually to school so I played a little in the Central Junior Hockey League ended up playing at UBC for a bit uh, and then the game, I figured it was, it was gone. I was done with it um, and, and didn't really think uh, I was going to have anything to do with it ever again. And then uh, found myself uh, trying to help my brother's team out, who was playing at the time for the victorious also of the BC League. And that kind of brought me, brought me back into the game as a, into the scouting and recruiting side of things. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you got your first, you worked for Victoria, and then, you know, Rand Pecknold saw something in you and, and brought you over to Quinnipiac to get your first coaching job in, in college, and, uh, you know, you guys were just kind of starting the program at that point, and, uh, and obviously we have a mutual best friend in Benny Sire, and, um, you know, what was it like kind of growing that Quinnipiac uh, program from from the beginnings and how cool is it now that they're kind of like on the national stage and almost like a national powerhouse? You know, it's it, it's phenomenal to see. Obviously, Rand's done a great job, and there's been a lot of folks that have contributed a ton to the program to kind of get it where it's at today. Um, and yeah, we were, you know, I, I came to that um, real early days. It's funny, um, the, how I got there is about as random as it gets. I ended up getting there because I was doing a showcase in B.C., uh, they had all these different teams that were putting together they had kids coming from all over North America to kind of get exposed to uh, the BC hockey league. And, you know, I got tapped to go coach this team out of the blue. And they're like, Hey, you know, we lost the coach. Do you mind just stepping in and, and taking this team of scrubs that no one thinks is going to be able to do anything anyway. And uh, lo and behold, we win the tournament. And this guy comes in, Rand, who had talked a little bit to my brother at the time, like I said, he was playing in the BC league about potentially going to Quinnipiac we end up striking up a conversation after uh, I win this big tournament and the champagne simmered down. He's like, Hey, if you ever have an interest in coming to coach in, 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 in Quinnipiac, you know, look me up. And, and, and of course was super fired up to, to come down and coach at the D one level. And that's how I ended up down there. And like you said, it was early days. 
uh, we, we had a, a good group of, of, of coaches. We, you know, we, like I said, we, I'm still close friends with all those guys that we came in with in the early days at QU. And, um, yeah, it was an interesting battle. We had, you know, we had players that were older than some of the guys on the coaching staff, which is a bit of an eye opener. And, and yeah, it was an interesting time. That's for sure. And then just, just to see the progression in terms of what Rand done with the program, how the school supported it. Uh, and obviously the fact that now they're pro- regularly producing NHL players and, and getting into the tournament and doing well, it's, it's phenomenal to see. That's for sure. That's unreal. So can you give me like, I can't imagine cause Benny told me the cast of characters that, that kind of lived together when you guys were there. And I, I can't imagine that, that that was very much fun. Um, knowing you guys, but, uh, you got, you got like a good story of, of Benny kind of in those first couple days. Cause he's one of the most hilarious human beings I've ever met. The problem with Benny is I don't know if he's like funny on purpose. You know what I mean? Like one of those guys where things seem, things seem to happen to Benny. Oh my gosh. You know, I've got way too many stories to tell uh, about Benny. I'm sure that if he knows this is on a podcast, he'd be mortified because I can spin some yarns, but you know, I got a good one for you. Uh, this goes back in the younger days. We we're all living together, young guys at Quinnipiac. And it was one of those days in, in CT where it's like a hundred degrees, the humidity is ridiculous. And there's all these, you know, air quality warnings, like don't go outside warnings and all this stuff. And the long and the short of it is we used to go running after work every day just to kind of go get the let out. And anyway, I'm looking at the weather, it's gross outside. I'm hearing all these warnings. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going for a run today. I'm not having it. So I'm literally on the couch eating chips and must've been sitting there for a good five minutes. And all of a sudden like the door kicks open and, Benny comes in the door like Kramer, like just like sweating, <laughs> like just can hardly can like breathing like he's about to die, like just housed. And he's like, I'm like, holy crap, Benny, what are you, what are you doing, man? Going for a ride? You're nuts. He's like, ah, you know, it was, wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. He sits down he looks like death warmed over. Like he's kind of pale, you know, he's kind of drinking some water. He's trying to kind of get himself composed after running in the heat. He's just sitting there and then, you know, we're kind of hanging out. It must have been, couldn't have been any more than like two minutes later, freaking the front door opens again and in walks his soon-to-be wife, Laura, and she sees Ben sitting there. He's still dripping wet and sweat, still kind of heaving. And she's like, Ben, you promised me that you were going to go for a run with me later today. And he just Uh-oh. looks at her and he's got this like weird look on his face. He's like, well, I guess we're going again. And be damned if the guy doesn't get up and go for another run outside with his wife or soon to be wife. And I was like, that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen Benny do. I mean, it was, oh, I should have said the craziest thing I'd ever seen him do, but it goes to show <laughs> you how serious he was. Craziest thing that you can say on this podcast anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, it goes to show you how serious he was about his, uh, his uh, future wife. Cause he, I, I could not believe he went out and went for another run. Cause uh, anyway, it was crazy, but it goes to show you he's committed. He's a good man. He is a good, good, good man. Yeah, someone's got to someone's got to give him a head gig sooner or later. That's for sure. Seriously, right? Like it's uh, it's about time. I know it's about time. He's got a really good thing going at Cornell, but uh, yeah, he's he's been building programs and winning championships and uh, been doing it the right way for a long time. So it's just a matter of time. Hopefully, it happens pretty soon. That's for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and you'll know he'll go that extra mile for you, regardless of how hot it is. <laughs> yeah that or he probably would have gotten a butt kicking from laura had he not gone so maybe he's a little <laughs> bit of both <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. Um, want to transition into it, Dunk, because like you, you have some awesome things going on right now um, with with the company that uh, that you're running and called Game Change, and you do a lot of stuff in athlete development. And uh, you know, we've had a few conversations recently with something that really piques my interest, and that's behavioral analytics. And, you know, I've said on the podcast before and, and, and like analytics right now in the game of hockey, you know, it, it's come to a point where I'm not sure how much of a competitive advantage is it, it is anymore. Right. Like when, you, when you're talking about Corsi and, you know, all the actual hockey analytics, um, you know, years ago and years ago, I'm not talking about that long ago, you know, when people were first starting to talk about it, you can certainly get a huge competitive advantage with it. But now everybody's doing it. So I don't know how much it does. So I feel like the next wave of like competitive advantage in the game of hockey and even in sports in general is just like how you treat people. And so when I talk to you about behavioral analytics and what you're doing with your company, like I think it's really, really cool. So if you can just kind of talk to us a little about and inform our listeners what behavioral analytics is and, and kind of what you do to, to help teams kind of navigate it. Absolutely. I think, and I agree with what you're saying in terms of the analytics and, and where the advanced on ice analytics are going. I think you're, I think hockey still got a little bit of room to maneuver to kind of get that nailed down. And there's some people doing some really cool things in that space. Um, but if you look at baseball, for example, the competitive advantage that people are now realizing from the analytics side of things is, is virtually nil. It's kind of table stakes now that if you really want to excel um, in baseball, you need to have a team of analytic people that are examining the game. I mean, I was talking to one gentleman and he was telling me that he thinks on average, there's about seven to eight guys on staff that their sole job is baseball analytics in, in a, in a major league baseball context. Yeah. At so, the same time though, it's, it's funny. Cause like I read um, Theo Epstein's book called the Cubs way. And, you know, he was kind of at the forefront of the analytics revolution. It's kind of how he built the Boston Red Sox back in the day. And uh, you know, he openly says in the book though, that like, you know, analytics is a thing that everybody's doing now. So what's our next competitive advantage? And that's how we're going to treat people. So like, I feel like that exactly. kind of goes along with kind of what you're doing. So just wanted to throw that in there. Cause it's like a piece of like evidence anecdotally that like, I don't know. That's no, the way I, I think it's going. You totally know? agree with you. That's funny. I was at a conference too. And I think Mark Cuban was there and he was talking about how the, the relevance of analytics is, is basically dissipating. And this is going back, this is probably five years ago. He says, really oh, what wow. matters is what's going on, what's going on in the room. And I believe that was at the MIT conference uh, going back a few years ago. So the whole idea that now we can measure what's taking place and the outputs that are taking place on the playing surface is like, well, what's going on in the individual that's in the, in, in the room, in the individuals in the room, in order to be able to manage them more effectively. So working well, with a couple of... So I was just going to say... What kind of thing does your does your company do then? What are you tracking? So that's yeah, that's where uh, where we're going on the behavioral analytics side is to really kind of get an understanding of what are the behaviors that drive optimum or optimal performance in elite performers, and that's really what we're driving at. Is at the end of the day, what allows an athlete to be successful? It isn't necessarily how good his skill set is. Cause I mean, I think we've all know guys that have played the game that have an unbelievable skill sets that look like they're a lock to play at the highest levels of the game, but they never do yet. Some other guy who may not quite be as talented gets there and stays there for an extended period of time. And a lot of that has to do with 
not necessarily the skills that they're bringing to the table, but the behaviors that they're bringing to the table. And I think that's the big distinction that we're really trying to drive at is that it isn't skills that get you there, it's behavior. And a lot of the work uh, in credit has to go to a couple of uh, my colleagues, including uh, Jay Harrison, who's actually a former NHL athlete, and uh, John Hurlihy, who's uh, I've worked with for a while, who's based out of Toronto. And we've sort of come up with this behavioral analytic concept, uh, and, and it's this whole idea of really diving deep on, in a given sport, in a given industry, what really drives the best possible outcomes for athletes. It isn't their skill set, it's their, it's their behaviors. And if you can understand what behaviors drive elite performance, then you can develop interventions for those guys that may need to enhance certain parts of their, you know, their behavioral traits uh, so that they're better able to perform. But then you can also make guys aware of maybe some of the negative behaviors or inclinations that they have that may harm their ability to take it to the next level. And I think that's really kind of where we're going with it is really introducing this concept that don't be concerned about skill set necessarily. Obviously, again, I, I go back to that table stakes reference is that you've got to be good to play at the highest levels of the game. But what are the behaviors that are driving uh, the best possible outcomes for your athletes? And, and how does that manifest itself when you intersperse them with different style coaches and other players? And what does that sort of realize? What does that suit look like? And I think that's kind of where we're stepping into the mix because of the work that we're doing is we're hoping that not only are we going to be able to help guys perform better today, but we're going to put them in the best possible position that once the sport is over for them, they're going to be able to jump into opportunities that mesh with where they want to go behaviorally uh, and are going to allow them to be successful once they walk away from the sport long run. Well, there's so many implications too, because I mean, then if a coach is choosing a team and guys are coming to tryouts and they have had these done, he'll know what, what he is going to have in the room and how to kind of piece the different behavior, uh, diff different guys, different personalities, different ways of thinking together, which I think is really cool. But how are you collecting the analytics? Is it uh, a survey? Like what, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head initially is that that's exactly what this kind of creates. It creates a, you know, we kind of use a terminology heat map. It's a, it creates a heat map for coaches uh, so that they can go, Hey, you know, this is, this is what's in the room and these are where interventions are, are needed in order to have an impact with this particular group of players. Um, and then the process to, to get the, the data, it really, it, I mean, it's, it's not that onerous. You're talking about, you know, a guy having to do an assessment that could take anywhere from, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and 10, depending on you know how much time and energy they want to you know, put into the process. Now, granted, some of the questions are designed to be repetitive and, you know, it's not, you know, it's not exactly the, the most fun thing to do because it's a lot of A, B questions uh, and, you know, like pick A or pick B. And some of the choices are, they're very difficult to make a distinction between the two. Uh, but long run, I think what we find is when guys go through this, the amount of information and data comes back to them that they're able to walk through with Jay and to get this real feel for, you know, kind of what they're behaviorally inclined to do has a massive, massive impact on their insight into themselves. And that's one of the things we're really trying to hammer home when we're working with guys is that this is really, when you boil it down, this is about personal awareness. And if you understand what's driving a lot of your decision-making, decision-making, it can be unbelievably impactful to your career, 
decisions that you make from an education perspective. Uh, and obviously it's going to drive um, what you do after the game. But I think one of the key things that we always have in our home is that we can tell you the performance traits that you need to enhance in order to perform at the highest levels of the game. And I think that's where guys are like, wow, this stuff isn't just about, we're not talking about the death of my hockey dream or the, you know, the funeral, you know, there's, a, there's an old line in the athlete development business, right? Like nobody wants to talk about the funeral, which is absolutely <laughs> the case. Nobody wants to talk about the death of their hockey dream, but we're saying that this stuff, if you engage with it right now, it's going to help you be a better player today. And I think that's what this behavioral analytics component piece is all about is making you more aware. So you really understand the dynamic that's going to allow you to be successful uh, in the game. And then obviously eventually outside of it. So like, can you give us like an example of a performance trait or a behavior, you know, that's like positive, you know, that you see, and maybe one that's like a little bit more negative in terms of like what kind of holds people back? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, I could definitely take a stab at that. So I think one of the things (laughs) that we look at is, is winning mindset, for example, and that's a, that's a behavioral trait that, sort of encapsulates a couple of different behaviors. But when you're looking at an athlete, you want to see them be um, obviously have that winning mindset. And what we've found is that those athletes that typically are more inclined to have a winning mindset, which is sort of comprises competitiveness and things of that nature is that they're typically more likely to be able to deal with the stresses and challenges of being in an elite performance context. And then when you look at the negative side, I mean, a lot of it is, is probably not necessarily um, that you know stuff that you that you wouldn't you you would expect to see in a lot of ways in terms of the negatives. Um, but I think one of the things that sort of surprised us is um, a negative piece for an athlete is innovation. So if you have an athlete that is self-reporting that they're highly highly innovative that is not necessarily the best behavioral trait to have as a elite professional athlete. Interesting. Why do you think there's a variety variety of different reasons that kind of come into that. And and it's tough to kind of, you know, put your finger on it precisely. But I think what we found is that a lot of the real high end elite guys, they, they thrive on routine. They thrive on being in the groove and understanding what they need to do to keep their body in peak performance and keep their mindset in the right mind state or the right state. And what we found is that guys that are more innovative tend to, I don't want to say fluctuate because that's probably not the right word or, or try different things. But what we've found is that the guys that are the best of the best, they really tend to shy away from innovation, which conversely, obviously is when you make a decision to leave the game and you want to excel in a more traditional work environment, that's not necessarily the best mindset to have being inflexible and not interested in change. So I think one of the things that we think this is really critical for is helping guys understand, Hey, this is a massive value add. If you have, you know, in the context of, of a, of an NHL sport career that you're maybe a little bit lower on the innovation side, that's fine. Just be conscious of it when you make the decision to leave the game. Uh, so understand how it helps you today as you're playing and then be aware of it as you walk away from the game uh, so that you don't find yourself lockstep in, in a mindset that maybe isn't necessarily the most positive uh, to being successful outside of the sport. That's really interesting. And, and I feel like the whole, the, the innovation, I feel like that is even 
like a greater way to say that how much those guys need coaching, right? Because like the coaches can be the innovators and they can find ways to do things differently. And then they can put it into the routines of the actual players. Like that's the reason why a Patrick Kane hires a, a Brian Kane and a Daryl Belfry. It's why Zidane Ochara hires an Adam Nicholas. It's why a Dylan Larkin hires a, a Brandon Nerado. Um, why Adam Oates has all these, these guys. Cause those people are very, very innovative. They study the game. Um, they know the new trends and all that kind of stuff. And then they can find a way to, to add that to the routines um, and the behaviors, I guess you can even say to, to the players with that, like, do you think that's kind of like an accurate assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely sort of part of the equation, right? Like you, you're so focused on excelling as a as an elite uh, and professional athlete, is that how you know how much time do you really have to dive into a lot of this stuff? Uh, and you're so focused on the routine because, I mean, as a, as a professional athlete, you know, whether it's hockey or anything else, you really are are kind of living in a little bit of a hallway, right? Like what door you walk through and when. You got to be at X place at X time. There's not a lot of time to have, um, you know, really dive into these sort of really complex areas around, you know, develop. Now, some athletes do not to kind of paint a broad brush. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I think you're right, is that in order to kind of uh, get a feel for some of these different concepts and stuff, that's where you see athletes that do tie into folks like you, you outlined there in order to kind of, get introduced to that in order to change their routine and to change how they approach the game, which I think is obviously, which is critical. And I think when you talk about the coaching side is in a lot of ways, you know, coaches should really encourage their athletes to, to try and be innovative in their approach uh, and explore things beyond the game in order to be successful. Cause there's, I mean, this is a whole other ball of wax we can get into is that there's a ton of data that shows that if you're an elite or professional athlete, that it is absolutely critical that you look outside that sport bubble while you're playing in order to put yourself in the best possible position to obviously excel beyond the game. But crucially, it actually helps you play better now. So the data coming out on that is absolutely unreal. And there's a recent study out of uh, Australia where they did uh, longitudinal data over three years with the National Rugby League. And they found that athletes who were actively engaged in activities outside the game designed to kind of expose them to different things that weren't specific to rugby. They played longer, they made more money, they were injured less, and they played more games. So in other words, what I'm telling you guys and what I would say to coaches that are out there is this idea that you put your kids or your players sorry, in a, in a room and say, focus on hockey, do nothing but hockey, 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 it's moronic, like nothing short of moronic. You're actually hindering the capacity of your team to perform in the long run, you're hindering individual development. It's, it's absolutely the wrong approach if you want to drive towards optimal performance, because if you're doing this approach where it's all one thing and nothing else, you're, you're, you're absolutely committing um, malpractice as a coach. (laughs) Or as a youth organization, right? I mean, you have such this like, um, this drive for specialization right now. Um, but what you're saying, I mean, we all talk about a, how that's moronic in your words. Um, but you, you've actually done or have seen studies done at the highest levels with the mo- most elite athletes. And they need a diverse set of experiences to, to get the most out of themselves too. Is that kind of what you're saying? 
Absolutely. I mean, if you're a parent and your kid's playing hockey 11 or 12 months a year, like take yourself outside and just beat yourself with a stick because basically <laughs> you're, 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 you're effectively cranking the, ado- you're cranking the odometer on that kid's um, experience in the sport. So he's putting more miles on his body specific to the game. So there's the whole, you know, the, the whole medical physical side of things. But when you look at what you're doing to that kid between his ears, it's a nightmare because the kid can't get outside the game. He can't get exposed to anything beyond that. So absolutely, if you look at um, what's taking place, particularly what we're seeing in, in, in Australia, New Zealand, the deep and heavy emphasis that they're placing on their athletes stepping outside of the pure sport bubble and engaging in things beyond the game is, is absolutely massive. And they're doing it in a way that's designed to augment not only the athletic experience for the individual person, but they're doing it to ensure that the athlete can perform at the highest possible level because they've already documented the value they can get out of it. So you've got guys that are making, in an Australian, New Zealand context, that are making anywhere from 350 upwards of $2 million a year playing rugby, and they're being encouraged to explore things outside the game so that they can be more successful in it. So if you're sending little Johnny to the rink all the time and, or little Sally to the rink all the time uh, for 12 months of the year, you, yeah, again, you want to talk about, I mean, that's straight up negligence in my mind. From a sporting <laughs> perspective. Well, Jeff, why don't you like give our listeners a little bit of a window into the pro hockey culture in terms of like a day to day type thing, because, you know, I, I'm hearing Duncan talk right now. And I, I think back to kind of like when I played pro hockey for the couple years that I did at the lowest of lowest levels, but still it was pro hockey where, you know, you go to practice in the morning and, you know, if you don't have a game that day or you don't have anything else going on, you got a whole hu- like chunk of time of just nothing to do. So like, if you can, I mean, you played for at a higher level and, and you played for a lot more years than, than I did, you know, kind of like walk our listeners through, um, you know, kind of like a day in the life of when you don't have a game. And then also like thinking about what Duncan is saying, like, how did you do in terms of like engaging in other activities? Uh, did you do it? Did you not do it? And then kind of go from there. Well, it's funny you say that because the first few years, like I was just so, I mean, obviously I had that really bad injury and I missed a full year. Um, so maybe part of that reason is the reason that I was like on all the time I felt like, but like we've talked about that might've hurt me. Um, but you know, when I was playing in the U S it was wake up at like seven thirty or eight o'clock. You have breakfast, coffee, go to the rink. Uh, you get to the rink at maybe eight thirty, nine o'clock practice is usually 10, 10 30. So you warm up, you, you practice, you work out after practice and your, your day is finished. So like you're, you're out the door done with your work day by 11 30, 12 o'clock every single day. And so guys have a lot of time on their hands. And usually the young guys are the ones like myself, when I was new to playing pro hockey, um, you know, you go home, you go to lunch with the boys, <laughs> take a nap, wake up, maybe go to dinner with the boys. Like you definitely waste too much time. Most guys, but I think guys now it's kind of getting more and more accepted that you can go and do other things and challenge yourself in, in other ways and things like that. But what's really interesting is when I decided to go over to Europe is when I also started my training company and it started off really small and I was only doing a couple hours in the gym a day. I only had like two two to four clients that first year. Um, and every year subsequently it's grown quite a bit. But when I started doing that, 
and I, and I found myself having other interests and doing all these things. Um, even during the season, I was writing programs for other pro guys in other leagues or kids at home or whatever. I started playing better. Like that's when my career kind of really started doing, doing bigger things is when I went to Europe and I started having other interests and, you know, I got married at that time. And so I wasn't just watching Netflix all day. You know, I was out with my then wife, you know, walking around town or whatever and, and, and working, doing this other job. And then I also started like all the time studying up how to be a better trainer, how to be a more efficient trainer and maybe training my brain in a different way somehow helped me on the ice because that's, that's when I started playing better. Yeah, it's interesting because I think back to it too. Like, it it's it, it talks about just like mental, just like having something to do, you know. So you're not just like your your brain is on. You have to use your brain instead of just like watching TV or napping or whatever. So you're getting stimulated, and when your brain gets stimulated, then like you, like you said, like your performance got better. You were doing more things. So like, talk to us a little bit. Was it do you think it was just like you were doing stuff rather than not doing stuff? Was it the type of stuff you're doing? What like what do you think? Definitely. Well, I mean, I look back too, and I look back to like, you know, maybe one or two years out of the 10 that I played. And I think like, man, I probably got dumber that year because of the lack, <laughs> the lack of, uh, you know, knowledge I was feeding my brain because I was just like, all right, I got to be so structured. I got to practice, work out, nap, work out, dinner, you know, stretch, you know, but I wasn't really doing things to make myself a better person or get, you know, learn new, new things or anything like that. So I'm sure working your brain in different pathways is just going to make your athletic brain better because more, more cylinders are firing. But something that he said that I thought was super interesting, and this is something that I've seen as a trainer with my training business and the couple of kids that I've had that, you know, maybe you'll stop playing hockey after juniors is some of these kids who like specialize young and they're are so intense and they're so dedicated to hockey and they don't really develop interest outside. They are hockey. They're Joe hockey. That, that's all they have. And you see when their careers are over and I still talk to them or follow them on social media, or whatever, like it seems like some of them can get a little bit lost because they haven't developed the rest of their life. They literally have just been in rinks all day, every day, 12 months a year, you know, and, and, that's them. They don't have any personality outside that. And I think it's, it's hard for them once that ends. And I've also seen that with pro guys, a lot of pro guys that retire. I've seen that, that struggle and are like, Oh my God, what now I'm, I'm Jeff, the hockey player. I'm Tof the hockey player. I don't have anything else. So if you're not developing interests outside the game and, and doing these other things that will actually make you be a better hockey player is what he's saying. Like you're going to have a rude awakening whenever that last game is too. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, big time. And Duncan, well, this is a great transition because your company um, actually works with the NHLPA um, in terms of providing information and helping guys to transition uh, to, to the real world and real life after they, they hang up their skates. So like some of the stuff that Jeff's saying are those things that you've seen in, in your realm of work and, and what do you kind of do to kind of help educate guys or are you being a little bit more proactive? Is the PA being even a little bit more proactive in terms of trying to find things for guys to do even while they're still playing? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate uh, in that um, both the, uh, the National Hockey League and the NHL Players Association, they've been supportive of what's called the core program, uh, which is designed to help active NHLers prepare for their, uh, their eventual departure from the sport. 
But I think one of the big things that we've tried to sort of change the culture on, and you've touched on a, a ton of different things there that, you know, it's going to be kind of difficult to unpack because uh, you, you hit on probably about six different things, you know, related, you know, talking about athletic identity and, and the challenges that guys face with that as they're coming out of the game. And, and obviously that's going to impact young guys as well. But I think um, just to kind of put a, a, a nutshell on it or try to anyway, is, is that the, the league and the players association, you know, launch core with the mission to, to really make guys aware of the, the challenges that come with that eventual transition from the sport. And I think the work that we're doing is, is to do address kind of like what you were talking about that early stage part of the career. A lot of guys, they don't want anything to do with this idea of transition. And if I was a, you know, an NHL player and I never got close to that in any way, shape or form, but I have the same attitude. Like why in a million years, do you guys want me to talk about the end of my career? Like I just got here. I'm hanging on with two fingers onto this ladder rung just to try and get to the next one. I don't want to talk about the end of it. So I think one of the things that, you know, we've been fortunate the league and the PA have been really supportive of is talking about it in a performance construct. And that's really sort of changed to how guys engage with it. So they try and kind of come to a, some sort of a coherent point here is the, 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 the challenge is real for guys coming out of the game, particularly if you've been in the game for, you know, five, 10, 15 years, that's a long time where you're, you know, if, if you play 15 years in the national hockey league, you've been involved in the game since you're probably six. So you're talking the time run there. You've been in the game a long, long time. So that challenge coming out is, is absolutely massive. And what we're trying to do within the context of our program is to help break up guys' uh, identity so that they aren't solely reliant on their sport or their hockey identity. It's to make them aware that, look, you have a lot of other potential interests and behavioral traits that are going to allow you to be successful in a whole range of different realms uh, if you're interested in kind of beginning to at least have a look at them. So the idea is that we try and make that process not scary for guys. Cause we're like, look, we're not just by, cause there's a lot of superstition too, right? Can you imagine you're, you know, I'm going to go talk to a guy about the end of my career and I just got into it. Like, what am I doing? I'm shooting myself in the foot by even thinking this thing is going to end. And we, that's like a real thing that we, we you know, we've kind of dealt with in a lot of ways, but the idea being that uh, if we can get these guys to, to come in the door try and crack away at that athletic identity a little bit and explain to them that there's options beyond the game. And the younger they do it, the more options that they're likely to have. I think that's been a big part of, of what we've been trying to do. And the, the league and the PA have been supportive of it. And I think we're just going to try and continue to do that kind of work. Well, well, let me ask you this because there's, there's two sides to that coin, I feel like. And one is, you know, the players and educating them on having other interests and how it can help them perform and, you know, how it's going to help them transition outside of hockey. But what about the teams? You know, do the GMs and do the teams that they're, you know, they need hockey players. You know, they need guys that are going to perform for them, um, you know, 82 times a year and then into the playoffs. Are they a little bit leery of, you know, their players getting interested in, in other things because they're not going to be focused so much on hockey, even though the evidence is there that their performance will actually be a little bit better? How have the teams kind of reacted to some of the studies that have been shown? You know, we, we don't have a ton of interaction with, with the teams, so it's difficult to say 
where where the teams are as a whole. I mean, anecdotally, we hear that some teams are a little bit more forward thinking than others. Uh, all I can really speak to is that I think there seems to be a growing understanding, and I'm, and I'm hearing this from players uh, that are talking to us about sort of their attitude uh, about how they approach their interests outside the game. Like if you go back even 10, 15 years ago, or if you talk to a range of alumni guys, like the idea that you would crack open a book and your coach or your GM would see it, that would be, you know, that would be a very career limiting decision. <laughs> if you got, if you got caught out doing that on the plane, unless of course, you know, your, you know, your, your talent is, is absolutely insane and it doesn't matter. But I think what, I think what it's starting, you're starting to see, at least from the players is they don't feel it's something necessarily that they need to hide. Now, granted, a lot of guys are still wary, uh, particularly if they're, if they're younger, that they don't want to be kind of seen as not being a hundred percent committed to the sport. But I mean, where we're, what we're hearing is that there's, there's an openness to it, maybe more than there was, you know, going back a few years. But I think there's still some significant room to grow in that space where teams, instead of being benign to it, are actually more proactive in supporting it in a way that they understand that if their athletes are doing this, it's going to allow them to perform better, be more consistent, and, and perhaps not deal with as much burnout. Um, like, like you said, 82 games, it's a long season. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and the idea that, yeah, the, the idea that, that, you know, guys can kind of step outside without fear of uh, being seen to not care about the game, I think is, is really positive. Well, I think at that level too, that's, it's going to bring a level of security to the player's self-esteem. Like obviously every player, you know, you're making that kind of money. They're also spending quite a bit of money, like in that lifestyle. So the guys who aren't, you know, set on those long-term massive contracts, they're always thinking like, I got to perform. I got to perform. I need to make money. Like I need right. to make as much as I can because my career is not going to be one like Crosby's for the mo for the majority of guys. So if right. you can get them, you know, learning new skills or getting excited in other things, they're probably going to be more confident in themselves and their ability to take care of themselves post hockey, whenever that may be, which will then make them play better because they're more confident in themselves. Confidence is everything. Well, Jeff, let me ask you this. You played at totally that, agree. Yeah, you played at that level. Like, how many guys are playing the game to put food on the table for their families? You know, like, especially at the AHL level. Well, maybe it's different now that's a little bit younger. But, like, you know, how many guys do you think on a typical, let's say, a 20-team roster are legitimately like, I need, like, I need this. Like, I can't retire. I need this. I need this, you know? Well, it would be interesting to look at like marriage rates within professional hockey. I, I I don't know. For some reason, I feel like it's probably younger than the average. I feel like a lot of guys are getting married that, that are playing pro hockey. And I, I could be just completely out of my butt. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'll never forget this. I went to Washington Capitals development camp after my freshman year. And the coach came in and, you know, it's development camp. So it's all younger guys. And he said, the best thing you guys all have going for you at this age is you don't have a family. The worst thing you guys have going for you at this age is you don't have a family. And I remember sitting there like, 
Wow. What the hell does that? And then I was like, oh shit, that makes a lot of sense. And when, you know, I think about my career before I was married and then after I was married, I felt a lot more pressure after I was married to perform and, and like, just be like, okay, like now it's not just about me. Like I've got to provide and, and, and do things like that for, for my wife and I at the time, you know? So I, I'm sure if you're married, especially if you got kids, I mean, I train a bunch of guys that play over in Europe that have kids and they're getting towards the end of their career. They're not the end of their career, but they're getting towards it. And you know that they're thinking about that. Like, Hey, I got two kids. Like I better believe I need to score 10 to 20 goals this year so I can make six figures next year and, and be able to provide for my family. Yeah. It's funny when you said that though, because I think one of the things that stands out to me and what you said previously though, is that that pressure is very real and guys, guys face it, you know, every year. But what's fascinating is what you were talking about when you made a decision to kind of step away from the game and you felt your game improve. And I think that what's crazy is that I hear that all the time. And the number of guys that have told me like, Hey, I made a decision to take a course or, Hey, I decided to get involved in this particular hobby, or I decided to get involved in this business investment, anything that kind of take guys, take them away from the game. They all report that. Wow. Like I started playing unbelievably better. Like it changed their entire career arc in terms of where they went. And, and Jay Harrison, for example, the guy that works with us, he tells a story. And I'm not going to put the words in his mouth. You need to get him on the podcast. He'd be awesome. But he, I mean, he talked about how, you know, he made the decision to start engaging in education and it completely changed his entire career. And I think what you're talking about there is absolutely spot on is that if guys can make the decision to kind of look away or get outside the game a little bit, it kind of takes a little bit of that family pressure off and that pressure to perform because of a, Hey, I've got something else here that I can maybe stick my toe into that isn't going to be completely foreign when I walk at a, walk away from the game. So I'm not as scared. And then lo and behold, they can, they, they start playing better. And I think that is, there's research evidence that supports it. There's anecdotal evidence that I've seen. We've got some internal research that seems to suggest the same thing. So I think there's there's so much to what you were talking about there, Jeff. It's it's, it's unbelievable. Well, at the pro level too, like you know, again, I think it comes down to probably confidence and security. Like obviously, I'm not talking about when, in the NHL because I only played preseason and was called up for the playoffs, but like. It's. I didn't play though. I say that I black aced, but I don't want anybody. I'm not. I don't want anybody thinking I'm telling tall tales. Like I didn't play. I was black acing, but I was on the roster. Anyways, um, not a big deal. So when I'm playing in Europe, you know, like making pretty good money. But when I started doing the thing in the summer, after the first few years when it took off, when I started actually making real money in the summer. I was also thinking like I can relax on that tension, you know, like I'm, I have other sources of income coming in. So if I don't have my best year, like it's not a huge deal because I know I'm making money in other places. So do you think that at the pro level that it, it comes down to like monetary decisions or are you finding that? Cause you said Harrison did, did um, more schooling and stuff. So like, obviously he wasn't making money off that. So is that just like, it's doing anything or is it doing things where people feel more secure in their financial future in dealing with pros? I think it's a little bit of both. And I mean, I think you could make the case that, you know, if you have a stronger educational background coming out of the game, you're going to be more likely to be in a better earning position. And I mean, I've heard guys that, you know, they engaged in different businesses or, you know, they, they, they interned really proactively during the, the last lockout. So when the, when the season kicked off again, 
they were looking at themselves going like, holy crap, like I just did this work in this environment for like the last five, six months or whatever it was. And I was awesome at it. And then all of a sudden it kind of took the pressure off the game. So they knew that the game disappeared on them again. It wasn't going to be the end of the world. So I think it's a little bit of both because I think that the, so the way I would answer at the pro level and even at some of the elite level, just sticking your head outside the bubble makes a massive difference from a performance perspective. And I think it also makes a significant difference in terms of how you view your eventual step away from the game. But I think you're right. I mean, if, if you feel whether you're making $10 million a year or $5 million a year or the minimum, if you walk away from the game knowing that you don't necessarily have to rely on that nest egg, because I mean, the guys have a lot of stress about that, right? I mean, one of the best lines I ever heard was from a guy who's like, I'm, I'm two mistakes away from losing everything I played 10 years for from a financial perspective. So these guys live in fear of making a mistake that sets them back in a way that they can never recover from because they don't have the same kind of income that they used to have. So this idea that guys don't have to rely on the income that they can create in another environment, I I would say, yeah, absolutely. It has a, it has a big impact on their mental space when they leave the game that they know that there's an opportunity to generate revenue in a different context. Wow, like what a great window into the the pro hockey culture, right? And and kind of the some of the issues that uh, a lot of guys have, and not even guys, but but women too, when they transition from from hockey into you know the real world. And you know, one thing we've talked about, Duncan, on this podcast quite a few times with some different people is, and I'm sure you deal with it a lot, is is mental health. You know, and you know, we've talked a lot about the pressure here and the fear, you know, of not living up to things and not being able to provide. Um, do you guys have mental health initiatives that you, um, you know, help the players out with? Is it something that you guys talk about with, with the PA and with the players? And, and uh, so if you could just kind of talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the cool things is that some of the work that I'm doing, I get exposed to through the Professional Association of Athlete Development Specialists, which is a mouthful. Uh, you can check it out at <laughs> paads.org. There you go. Exactly. Check it out. Uh, but one of the cool things is on the broader sport umbrella is that mental health, like you said, is a massive issue. Uh, and you're starting to see leagues, players association, um, really understand the, the ramifications of not helping athletes deal with, with mental wellness and mental health in general. And I think that is, you know, much to the, uh, the credit of a lot of these organizations are getting behind in a big way. They're investing in it. Uh, so absolutely, you're starting to see it across sport. You know, the NBA is doing some cool things. The NFL is doing some great things. Um, you know, the WTA women's tennis is 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 really doing some phenomenal things in the in the mental wellness space for their athletes. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there's there's a lot going on in that space as it relates to hockey. And again, I keep bringing up Jay Harrison. Jay is actually a uh, counseling psychologist. He's actually working on his uh, doctorate degree in, in this space. And he's helping in concert with the NHL and the NHL Players Association to really kind of frame up a mental wellness initiative that sort of meshes well with our broader athlete development initiatives uh, in the context of our core program. So absolutely, this is something that um, I think that has is, is been a focus um, and that, you know, from a hockey perspective, that we are all aware of that needs to be addressed. So I think you know, we're still relatively early days in the process. Um, but I, 
my my take on it is is that this is going to be a, a big part not only of hockey but it's going to be a big part of the entire sports industry is understanding that there's a significant amount of pressure and stress associated with performing at a high, high level. And then if you kind of view it through the lens of social media and the, the amount of pressure that all of these elite athletes across all of these various sports are under is, uh, and in our, and even in the NCAA, man, like it's, it's unbelievably, um, I, I can't imagine being an NCAA athlete and just the amount of pressure these guys are under even in, in these, in these larger sports with the amount of social media that they kind of have to have to deal with. And you can look to the story of that kid that played uh, for the world junior team and, and how that kid was abused, a Canadian kid uh, for you know missing the, 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 I believe it was a penalty shot. So oh, yeah. long story short is I think that from my perspective is that speaking globally about sport is that to to the credit, a lot of the people working in the athlete development space, the mental health thing is a big deal and people are getting behind it and, and really, I think, doing some phenomenal things and hockey's right there with it. Well, well, let me ask you this because you, you kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit. You know, you got kids that are growing up playing youth hockey right now and, and you're lucky enough and have worked hard enough to get access and work with some of the top players in, in the world um, and you've seen these studies you know, and so you know how much pressure these people are feeling at the highest of highest of levels. Um, and you know kind of some of the maybe antibiotics that can help that in terms of getting people involved in other things and how that can help kind of take away that pressure and fear. Like with being a dad that like has kids in it now, like how many parallels do you see to the professionalization of the youth hockey world right now in terms of kind of what you've seen, you know, at the highest levels as well and how crazy it is? Well, I mean, the reality is, is that I'm living in, in Connecticut, just outside of Hartford and, and, you know, compared to say Toronto, Vancouver, you know, some of these, obviously these large hockey markets in Canada, I'm sure that, you know, we're in, we're really kind of in a hockey backwater probably in comparison. But that being said, like the pressure on kids at this level to perform at a high level and, and to sort of get in that arms race to continually try and get better and play sports on an ongoing basis. Yeah. It, it, you see it and you're like, well, well, this is not, this is probably not how we should be doing things. And the emphasis is maybe really on the wrong things. Yet we continue to kind of go down that road um, almost because of the inertia of how it's been done previously. So I think absolutely you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a massive issue that when you're trying to figure out how to help your own kids out, and you try and step into the breach to actually bring some of the knowledge, like you said, that I've been able to kind of acquire over my career. It's not easy to do. And in fact, the pushback is, is, is sometimes quite significant to, to kind of do things a little bit differently. And I mean, and you, the, the thing is nobody cares about data either. Like there was a recent study just to kind of get into the egghead stuff again. Is the, they looked at, uh, I believe it was like 30, it's a, it a major league baseball study they were looking at how likely are you to get to major league baseball if you played nothing but baseball 
from ages like eight to 15. And then after 15, did you specialize or were you already specialized before the age of 15? I'm just kind of rounding it out here. What they found was that guys that specialized between eight and 15 were significantly less likely to play major league baseball. The kids that didn't specialize in baseball until they were around 14, 15 years old were significantly more likely to play major league baseball. So it goes, goes, goes to show you that the mindset that everybody's bringing to the table, not that being at the pinnacle of the sport is what you want in any way, shape or form, because I think one of the big things I'm an advocate for is you're trying to build good human beings that can excel in a, in a society uh, and make meaningful contributions is that the whole ecosystem is busted as it relates to helping kids really get what they need to get out of youth sports. That's a really long answer, Toph, to probably what was a pretty simple question. But, <laughs> yeah, I just kind of got in the soapbox there and started railing away. No, it's all good. I mean, it's all good points, and we are not dumber after hearing you talk. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, no, but it's interesting what you said, too, about the inertia, right? Because we all talk about the problems of, of youth hockey, and you're steeped in it, Jeff's steeped in it, I am too. And a lot of people like to talk about the problems, the problems, the problems, and not a lot of people like to talk about the solutions, and I think it's because the solutions are so hard to come by because that inertia that you're talking about of the way that things have always kind of been done and how it's changing for the worse, like it's very hard to stop it in its tracks, you know, and like... So, like, why do you think, why do you guys think that is, you know, because why is it so hard to change the youth hockey culture? I mean, obviously in the U.S. and in Canada, they're huge markets, it's huge country, there's so many different people playing, but, like, I feel like everybody knows what the right thing to do is, right? Everybody knows, I, well, maybe not, I mean, with the study that you showed, Dunk, like, I feel like most people know that specialization is not the right thing for kids. Most people know that putting pressure on kids at such young ages is not the right thing to do. But like, why is it so hard for us to change that? You know, like from a tactical It's a great question. I mean, I, you know what part of it, I think is the, it's the arms race, right? If little Johnny's doing it, then, you know, I got to get little Sally doing it. And I don't know why I keep going to Johnny and Sally. So <laughs> whatever. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's, I think part of it's the arm race that you're, 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 you're not, keeping up. But I think that become that comes back to which, the core issue, which is people have gotten away from what the real value of sport is and the real value of sport and, and hockey. Like I believe this to my core is that hockey people are awesome people because the game requires something of you that maybe you don't require in another sport context. And I think when people finally realize that the goal of the game isn't to get your kid a ride, it isn't get your kid a pro contract, you know, it, it, you're there to help develop the best possible human being that you can and give them that confidence that they can excel in a, in a, in a, in a, in a unique environment that very not many people can. And when I say excel, I mean, you could be on a house team and your team is just rock solid together, having fun and, 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 and getting better as a group. And I think that's, I think that's where people have lost the plot is at the end of the day, the, the game is about, building human beings and hockey is a platform to do that. Baseball is a platform to do that. Football is a platform to do that. Sport is a platform to help build young people that can excel. And I think, again, when you, as soon as you miss the boat on that as the primary mission of the game, again, take yourself out in the yard, 
hit yourself with a stick because <laughs> you're not getting it. And I think that's really, you know, having been exposed to all these guys that have been at the highest level of the game, guys that are working in the highest levels of the game, is that everybody says the same damn thing. What is wrong with people and when it comes to their kids in sport? And I don't necessarily have an answer for you other than to say I think that people have just missed the boat about what sport is now about. And, and I think that is obviously it's frustrating as a parent seeing it. And I think that the more people that we can get that understand that, that are willing to stick their necks out there and we can get into that in a bit toe and make a change. I think that's, that's the only way you're going to stop this continual slide into, you know, I don't even know what to, what to call it, but this sort of constant idea that you need to get your head, your kid ahead in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I think what people don't understand and realize, at least this is my opinion, is that like the getting the college commitment or the making of the team or whatever, it's a byproduct of the life lessons that you learn, right? Like, yes, right. you need the skill. You know, you that's that's also can't get glossed over. Like, you need to have skill, but like, there's a lot of skilled players that don't make it to where they want to go. But the, the oh, ones that have learned the, the softer skills, you know, the resiliency, and we've talked about that. Um, you know, the routine, like, and how important that can be. Like, it's just, it's a byproduct. Like, everybody focuses on the result, but the result only happens because of the process. And if you put too much stress and pressure on the process, then it, you're not going to get the result that you want. Truth. Couldn't agree more, man. Spot on. Good grief. All right. Well, oh. drop the mic and the podcast I right think, there. I think we might have to. I think we might have to. We had some other stuff that we certainly wanted to talk about, but we've had you on here for, for quite some time now, Duncan. And this was great. Like, this is such a great window into, um, you know, the pro hockey mind and, and how it kind of interacts with mental health and things that are important in life outside of sport. And, you know, a lot of the work that you guys are doing, Duncan, with your company, I mean, it's going to change the game. That's literally what your company is called, Game Changers. So I think, I think. Yeah, um, no, I appreciate that. Um, so appreciate the work that you're doing. I think you're going to be helping a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of people get a lot out of this podcast too. So appreciate you coming on and, uh, yeah, look forward to being in touch and, and learning more about some more of the stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Well, thanks Jeff. Thanks Tof. And again, yeah, super appreciative for the chance to get on. And obviously the, the work that we're doing is a result of a lot of people that really do care and, and particularly in the NHL or with the NHL and the NHL players association. And, uh, with their support, you know, we hopefully can kind of continue to expand what we're doing and, like you said, have an impact along the game. So appreciate you guys having me on to talk about this stuff. Very cool, man. You bet. Thanks, Duncan. Have a good one. See you.